Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. A lot of people think it set the bar low and then you raise it little by little. That is not the tiny habits method. It's not start small and grow and raise the bar. You set the bar low and you always keep it low. But when you want to clear the bar by a lot more, than you do even on day one. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey, hey, Betty's. Welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. Tis me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. And today I have a wonderful conversation around the elucidation, formation, and continuation of habits. And with none other than Dr. B.J. Fogg. Dr. B.J. Fogg is a behavioral scientist at Stanford, where he directs and researches at the Behavioral Design Lab. He also teaches his models and methods in graduate seminars. His early work in persuasive technology has informed the design of products that millions love and use every day. Notable students, of course, include uh, the founder, one of the co-founders of Instagram, Mike Krieger. Uh, Other notable students, Ramit Sethi, who is founder of Growth Lab, the book, I Will Teach You to Be Rich, and uh, Tristan Harris, the co-founder of the Center for Humane Technology. Fortune Magazine called BJ a guru that you should know for his insights about mobile and social networks. And BJ has created a method of habit formation called Tiny Habits, which we talk about today, um, where he has personally, personally coached over 60,000 people in creating habits that last a lifetime. So what do you think that we talked about today? Well, we spoke all about change and how change perseverates when we feel good. It is the positive emotions that wire in the habit, not the negative ones. We talk about the difference between goals or um, things that you can do one time versus things that you have to do many times. So I frame that as outcome and behavioral goals. He has slightly different anatomy of language for that, which he goes into. We talk about the ABCs and the anatomy of tiny habits, like why tiny habits, right? What anchors might be, what prompts might be, how we can celebrate. 
And if you are someone such as myself who really has a hard time in celebrating your wins, he actually talks about a method to sort of circumvent, if you will, that limbic resistance that can often set in for perfectionists or recovering perfectionists alike. We talk about motivation, competing motivations. Uh, So, you know, you want to lose weight, but hot damn, that cheesecake looks really good, how we can actually uh, sort of tip the scales in our favor. We talk about designing your environment for massive success. We talk about skill acquisition and ability. We talk about all the things, emotions, um, how we can start new habits, how we can stop old habits that are no longer serving us. And he talks about the different ways that we can do that. Honestly, this was such a great conversation by the OG himself, if I may, you know, all of the things that he's talked about, very, uh, very much unique to his work uh, and his research. So very, very uh, powerful in terms of if you are someone who is looking to start a new habit, stop an old one, and to make sure that you do it over the long term so that you can fundamentally become the type of person who you know, insert goal here, loses the weight, learns the new language, you know, et cetera, stops drinking wine at night or stops snacking, let's say. Uh, this is the conversation for you. Share this far and wide with someone that you think might find this useful. Maybe it's a group that you're trying to create a goal uh, with. Maybe it's reading more. You have a reading group. Share this um, podcast with them. And without further ado, please enjoy my very juicy, robust conversation with Dr. B.J. Fogg. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. 
This is our apreski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea chocolate medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate melody you love the best. BJ Fogg, I am so excited to welcome you to the Better Podcast. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me. I've been looking forward to this. Me too. And we are going to be talking all about habits and how we can create and sustain habits over the long term. This is something that we talk a lot about on the show because I have I've spoken about this before and I'll I'll share it with you to to as a as a jumping off point. I think that in order to establish any type of goal, so we're going to talk about different types of goals today. Yeah. One of the things that um, has been at least true for me and true for the for the women that I've counseled is that you fundamentally need to become a different person in order to execute on the goal over the long term. But you don't wake up and you're like, I'm all of a sudden I am I'm Oprah Winfrey and I am the best interviewer on the planet. There's there's a there's a there's a, there's a spectrum that happens between yeah. waking up and let's say wanting to start a podcast or a show and then becoming, you know, ranking with someone like let's say Oprah Winfrey or or whomever. Yeah. So I wanted to start with this question um because I think that a lot of people want to change you know, New Year's resolutions come to mind. Um, but when we fail at the goal that we're pursuing, obviously that has a, there's usually some knock on our self-esteem, right. on our on our uh, perception of capacity or capability. And I wanted to start with this question around how can we help ourselves fe- feel successful by lowering the bar? Like why mm. tiny? I love this. Okay, this sounds like a simple question to everybody, but there's a lot in this question. Um, yes, yes, yes. Um, the way that someone achieves lasting change, there's only a few things that really matter. And one of them is to feel successful. And so one of the keys is to help yourself feel successful. Because if you try to change by feeling unsuccessful or guilty or using shame and so on, it might work in the short term, as you know, but it doesn't lead to lasting change. And so one way to help yourself feel successful is to set the bar really low. And I'll just say it, lower your standards, everybody. <laughs> Do be happy with even the tiniest, tiniest of successes. And that will help you feel successful. And what that, and I, I think we'll get into this, Dr. Stephanie, later, but it's that feeling of success that starts to change your identity, that starts to help you think about yourself differently. Okay. But if something is really easy to do, like we do in the tiny habits method, you are more likely to do it. You're more likely to be consistent. It's going to more likely wire in as a habit, et cetera. So there's, all these reasons that um, lowering our standards or setting the bar low is the right approach for making lasting change in a reliable way. 
So why is tiny? Why do we, why do we start with tiny? So in the book, tiny habits, uh, which I have right here for those of you that are watching the, uh, watching this on YouTube, um, you talk about all of these different parameters, which I, which I'd like to dissect maybe one by one. Um, you say things like tiny is fast. It starts right now. It's safe. Tiny can grow into something bigger over time and it doesn't rely on motivation or willpower. So I thought we might even just like line by line there, um, go through why, you know, lowering our standards and ladies, you know, for my <laughs> Bettys that are listening, this is the one and only time where I do think that lowering your standards is actually going to, to, to lead to the perceived outcome and a better prognosis, yeah. let's say, um, than you otherwise, um, might have if your standards are too high or you're setting the goalpost too far off of your current skills and abilities. So why is like, what is the allure, let's say of tiny, like why fast and why now? Like, why is that so important? For most people, there's not an allure. You and me and people listening to this, we're all high achievers and we all want to do big things and we have done big things. Okay. So when I um, ran a conference in 2010 at Stanford, that was all about baby steps and behavior change, people thought that was insane. Um, But I understood at that point that that was the key to reliably designing new habits and creating lasting change. Now, when you look at baby steps and and small changes, it's quite pervasive. And I'm happy about that, right? But back then, when I ran that conference, in fact, we lost a significant funding source because they're like, oh, we don't really believe in this. And it's like, no, this is how it works. The problem with going big so I'm kind of answering your question from the other side is if you set up some big thing, like I'm going to work out for an hour a day, or I'm going to change all these ways that I'm eating that are very big and they require effort. Those big changes require high levels of motivation to do. And so if you magically somehow can keep your motivation super, super high, you can be consistent with that. But the reality is human nature it is very difficult to keep your motivation super high for working out an hour a day or radically transforming your diet or so on because our motivation shifts around. And so when I was understanding the power of tiny, it it connected directly through my behavior model where it's like, if it's really easy to do, then your motivation doesn't have to be high. It can sag, we, we can design for the realities of human nature that your motivation is gonna shift around And in this moment, you may be more motivated to help your kid at school who is sick than working out for an hour that day, right? Because your motivation, it's not like you're not a motivated person, but it shifts around. So what tiny, going tiny, it acknowledges the reality that our motivation for exercising more, eating, you know, transformatively different and so on will shift around. And the only way we can be consistent is by setting the bar really low. Now, Dr. Stephanie, a lot of people think it's set the bar low and then you raise it little by little. That is not the tiny habits method. It's not start small and grow and raise the bar. You set the bar low and you always keep it low. But when you want to clear the bar by a lot more than you do, even on day one, if you want to walk for an hour or two on day one, awesome, knock yourself out. But you you set the standard low, so every day you can succeed at that lower tiny level. And whenever you're feeling more motivation, you do more and you count it. This is really important and a subtle point, but very important. 
you count the extra you do as extra credit, not as here is my new standard. Okay, so in my own life, that bar being low is two push-ups. I will do on a normal day, 50 to 100 push-ups during the day. But there are times like recently when I wasn't fully well and healthy, I just went back to the two push-ups. In fact, it was two counter push-ups in the bathroom. And that was fine and that was good. And it wasn't like I was underachieving. I was overachieving because I was doing the habit despite the other challenges in my life. So the tiny habits method, it's counterintuitive in that way. You set the bar low, you keep it low, and you allow yourself to overachieve and you give yourself credit for overachieving maybe on a daily basis. That's actually very juicy because as you said, there are a lot of women, a lot of men, a lot of, a lot of people that are listening, um, that are absolutely chronic perfectionists. And what I have found, and I've said this before, but it's like when a, when a type a overachieving personality is faced with the, uh, you know, all or nothing. It's like, here's yeah. all. Is it a hundred push-ups or no push-ups? If we know that we can't control the outcome, we choose nothing. Like we throw the baby out yeah. with the bathwater. We have ephoditis. You know, it's like, nope, I'm not going to do it. Forget it. So I actually really like that. And that's actually a, a nuanced point that I didn't quite get. And I'm so happy that you made it. So that we always keep the bar low yeah. and then the overachieve. So you do two and then maybe you do 48 more over the course of the day, let's say. Yeah. But then that um, also so, so, feeds, that also feeds like that. Oh my gosh, see, I'm doing more. I'm even like yeah. I'm overachieve. Like that also feeds that sort of egoic or whatever part of the, of the brain and the personality that wants to do more than let's say baseline. Yeah. And it is a skill you can create to embrace. Okay. So people looking for challenges, here's the challenge. Allow yourself to feel good, even with the tiniest of successes. Okay. I know that's not what we've been trained to do. My students at Stanford weren't trained to do that, but it's like this morning. Um, I mean, the, the tiny habit recipe for me is after I pee, I will do two push ups. Okay. And you pee a number of times a day. And so the last time I peed, uh, I got down and I did two push ups, and I was like, I'm going to keep going. And I did 15 or 18. I went until I got a little bit of a burn. And as soon as I passed through, I was like, good for you, BJ, look at you, good for you, right? And so the skill is to set the bar low, not raise it, and then to have the skill of self-reinforcing, causing yourself to feel good as you overachieve. So what that does is it wires in the habit, that self-reinforcement, it motivates you to do it in the future, and it changes your identity. I'm the kind of person who goes above and beyond the minimum. So it does all three things at once. That's so good. Let's, um, let's just double click on uh, what you said there, which was, you know, you do the two pushups and you say, BJ, like, great job. Like, so, so awesome. I think that that is also counterintuitive. And you talk about this in the book yeah. where you say, like, change happens when we feel good. And I think it's interesting because so many, at least so many, uh, clients, uh, and, you know, community members that I've, that I've spoken to, they often start habits when they, 
feel, you know, they've, they've hit rock bottom, let's say, or they feel bad yeah. about themselves or they feel like they have to, uh, you know, publicly announce and almost ridicule themselves in order to elicit the change that they're looking for. So can you talk a little bit about why change happens when we feel good yeah. and how that wires in, you maybe we can talk about some neurotransmitters in there as well, potentially, yeah. but why that, how, why, and how that, um, wires in the habit. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, so what I've done in my work since 2007, and it was probably before that, 2007 is when the FOG behavior model was published and shipped. It's, there it is. So There's one model that describes all behavior. Within the world of behavior, you have things you do one time, one time actions, like sign up for a service or buy something or uh, make a commitment or promise. And then there's a different type of behavior that are habits, things we do quite automatically. The way you design for one-time actions is different than how you design for habits. Now, to do a one-time action, you can use guilt, you can use shame on yourself or other people, and you can get yourself to do stuff. You can use willpower, like my students do, to do an all-nighter to write a paper, okay? So that's like a, a, a push that they're, they're, they're tapping into motivation or a type of motivation that I call willpower, which we can get into what willpower is if you want, but that's not the best way to create habits. Okay. So what people often confuse is like, I'm really good at using guilt or shame or beating myself up to get myself to do, I bought this product. I bought this program. I bought a workout machine. Notice those are all one-time actions. And yes, you can use those negative ways to get yourself or others to do those one-time actions, but those negative ways do not work very well to get ourselves to create habits and transform our identity around those habits. So that's why that phrase, you change best by feeling good, not by feeling bad. The type of change I'm talking about there is lasting change, long-term change, as well as changing your identity. So then it becomes consistent with your identity. This is how I move, or this is how I manage my stress, or this is how I eat. It's just how I am. You know, and then that just becomes ingrained in you. So too often, though, people have been led to believe and people have had temporary success with using guilt and shame, beating yourself up to do it. So you you feel some success at the beginning, but as you know, and as people have seen, that peters out. And it just leaves you feeling like you're a failure. And it leaves you feeling blaming yourself. And in many ways, that's what the Tiny Habits book is all about. In fact, I think I said in the first page, I'm here to tell you that if you've tried to change and you couldn't, it's not your fault. It's not a character flaw. It's that you weren't given the best way to change your habits and change your life. Welcome to Tiny Habits. This is how you do it. And you do it by feeling good, not by feeling bad. I think that that also has... Um sort of far reaching applications for things like parenting. Um, at least I have found that, uh, negative consequences, certainly for, as you were saying, like for a one-time thing, you know, it's like you've colored all over the walls maybe, uh, or the child has colored all over the walls, let's say, um, 
understanding that there's going to be a negative consequence for that, but for lasting some of the positive continuous, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of thinking in my, my brain goes to sort of language and syntax where like, you know, when you think about the English language, you can say I run or I am running, right? So one is like a one-time action. I run or I am running, which is the continuous present. So it's almost kind of what you're talking about where it's like you do one thing one time, or there's a continuous repetition of the behavior. And in, you know, I guess in behavioral psychology, and certainly you would be able to comment on this, uh, with far more meticulous, uh, intelligence than I, uh, but it's, it's almost the difference. I talk about this with my coaching clients with the difference between outcome goals and behavioral goals. Like we have one sort of North star. I want to lose 20 pounds, but it's the behaviors. It's the continuous present, right? For my syntax and my language geeks, you know, it's the, it's the behaviors that we do every single day that feed into the outcome that the outcome goal that you've designed for yourself. Love it. And let me build on that. I think that's exactly right. When it comes to what you're calling outcome goals, and I use a similar term, pick something huge and exciting and big. Yes. You know, that's where you're like, what do I want? What am I shooting for here? But then for the actual behaviors or habits to get you there, then be realistic and practical and break it down to the right habits and behaviors and set the bar really low. So there's a difference between where you want to get the result of habits and behaviors and and how you um, and what you should be doing to make those habits part of your life and do them consistently. So the tiny habits method is not about um, like, you know, lame or underwhelming (laughs) outcomes and goals. It's about massive ones, but that's how you get there is by creating reliable habits uh, that become part of your life, that shift your identity and, Maybe we'll get into this later, but what happens is this. So I'll just use a quick example of, oh, maybe unhealthy snacking. So, so maybe you, you've created a habit of resisting an unhealthy snack at work during the lunch break. Bam, I did that. And you feel successful about it. As you do that and feel successful, you're going to start thinking to yourself, I'm the kind of person who can resist unhealthy snacks, right? And so even though you haven't designed for the the cocktail party you're going to the plane flight you're going to be on the you know the preschool holiday event once you think of yourself as i'm the kind of person who can resist unhealthy snacks that workplace afternoon habit you created has shifted your identity and it has this generalized effect into other domains that you hadn't even thought about or encountered right because it's only you're behaving consistently with how you see yourself. And I started teaching the tiny habits method in 2011. I didn't understand the impact on identity till about 2013. I started measuring it in 2014 in the five day program and assessing identity shift. And it happens and it can happen quickly. And it comes from feeling successful about making a change. And here's the huge surprise that I just love. The change of the habit does not have to be very big. All it has to be is you feel successful around it. Okay. So it's not like you have to transform everything and say, I'm the kind of person who resists healthy snacks. Just one instance in one situation, you know, lunchtime, they put candy out. You're good at saying no to that. That then shifts how you think about yourself. So it's almost like a loophole in human psychology. You can change your identity by feeling successful in creating a habit 
And that habit doesn't have to be very big. It comes down to the feeling that you have. That's what shifts how you think about yourself. I love that because essentially what you're saying is we're changing our self-perception and the schemas that we hold, like these previously sort of held beliefs that we have around ourselves. And we're essentially changing the filter. I had a, yeah. I had a conversation, um, with, uh, Sal Stefano, He's, uh, of the mind pump, uh, guys, very big, uh, into fitness. And he was talking on the show about, uh, a teenager. And I just experienced this with my son. So I'm bringing this up kind of to, to, um, reinforce your point. He was talking about this teenager that he was training. The, the teenager was overweight, maybe had some low self-esteem issues and started weight training with him. And what Sal said to him at the end of, I think it was maybe a week or maybe it was a day of training was you are fundamentally a different person now because now you are someone who can do a call it five or 10 pound, let's say, uh, bicep curl, whereas before you weren't. And this happened with me this morning with my son. So I was working out as I often do in the morning and he kind of came down because he's been seeing me working out in the morning forever. And he's like, well, I can't like, can you show me what you like? I want to do a couple things that like that you're, that you're doing. And so I showed him some chest press stuff and like some shoulder raises and stuff. And then at the end he was like, oh, like my arms, like they feel different. You know, like I feel different. I'm like, yeah, you are fundamentally a different person now than you were 20 minutes ago when you first were learning how to do this chest press and these shoulder raises. And in the same, like just to reinforce what you're saying, you become a fundamentally different person when you're able to one time, one time, not have the donuts at the office or yeah. one time go for the walk that you had set for yourself that you would put in the calendar and follow through on. I love that example. And if I understood it right, it was the trainer who pointed that out to your son, right? It was the okay. train. The trainer had pointed it out to one of his clients. And then okay. I just, I just ex- experienced this with my own son. I said the same thing okay. that Sal okay. said to his trainer, to his it, client. It, yeah. I'm, I'm getting chills because the tech, that technique is so powerful within the tiny habits community. So we train coaches in the tiny habits method and health and be really effective. Um, there is that we call this technique identity changing uh, reinforcement statement. I mean, we have this big, long name for it, but it's basically you point out to people, notice you were the kind of person that could establish a tiny habit and do it. Notice you're the kind of person that works out. Notice you're the kind of person that can do this when you couldn't. So you, even though your son may not have recognized that on his own, you helped him see that. And that is like one of the, I think, most important things you can do when you're coaching or helping people change behavior is to call out um, and help them think about themselves differently. So um, my husband is about 20 years older than I am. He is 78. And he never grew up working out. I grew up working out and swimming and competing and all that kind of stuff. You know, I love that stuff. I'm super competitive. And he just didn't. Um, But, and he never really, he was super, he's super active, but just like not really working out stuff. But one day he somehow stumbled across rowing on the rowing machine and loved it. And so I watched, I was like, Denny, look, look, you are the kind of person who's really good at rowing. And then guess what happened? Now we have a rower in our Maui home, our California home. The first exercise he did this morning was rowing. He totally thinks of himself as this person who is a rower and that has expanded to other kinds of working out. We started him on a trainer three weeks ago for strength training. He would have never done that like five years ago. Okay. So that me pointing that out and his feeling successful led to 
it's like dominoes that fall, but it's dominoes that then cascade on a bunch of other dominoes and have this much bigger effect. So that technique you used, it's got a really klutzy name in the tiny habits world with their coaches, but I think everyone can understand that technique. You help people see that, um, that they are embracing or becoming a new person and you point it out to them so they can see it for themselves better. I love that. And then if you don't have someone who can point it out for you, at, to your point, these little tiny celebrations, you can point them out to yourself. You can say, look yeah. at me. I'm so good. I did those two push-ups, or I did the, you know, I went for the, for the five minute walk or I did the five jumping jacks or, you know, whatever it is. Um, you can also be your own cheerleader. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which some people do naturally. And some people have a terribly hard time to do it. And then it's like a spectrum. There's a bunch of people in between. Yeah. And if you're the kind of person that can't give yourself credit for doing even the tiniest of things, take them on as a challenge. Okay. So if you have a really high bar for your life, take them on as a challenge is I'm going to learn to feel good about my successes, even the smallest of successes. Um, my Stanford students, that's really hard for them. And at the beginning of this fall's class, I said, you know, conceptually, this won't be the hardest class you've ever taken, but emotionally and psychologically, it may be, because I'm going to be asking you to do things that you're that were not the things that got you into Stanford. The things that got you into Stanford were you doing all-nighters and pushing yourself and going to the extremes. And But now I'm going to have you think about yourself differently and set the bar really low and have yourself feel successful about even the tiniest of successes. And some students got it readily and some students were really challenged by that because they're just like, why do I deserve to feel successful? This was not a big achievement. Well, in the book I outlined, there's three reasons why it is actually a big achievement, even though the, the behavior was tiny. But uh, let me put that out as a challenge for people to think about who are so hard on yourself. And just one more thing, one more thing. And then um, the when you look at all the ways that you can tell yourself you did a bad job and in the tiny habits training and often in the coaching, we have people list, what, what are all the ways that you say you did a bad job? Now on the other side of the paper, list all the ways that you tell yourself you did a good job. And guess which list is radically longer than the other, the bad job one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, and I, for some people looking at that disparity makes them go, oh, yeah, you're right. I should at least have an equal set of language or ways to say I did a good job. And in some ways that's a, well, it is a skill in the book. I map out uh, 22 skills of change and that's one of them. Um, and it may not be natural or feel natural to people, but when you learn to self-reinforce, even, you know, tell yourself you did a good job and that could be physical movement. It could be a little song in your head. It could be uh, something you say, there's a, over a hundred ways to do this. And those are in the book. What you will find is your approach to life will also feel different and you will have a much more optimistic framing on life and any challenges you come across will feel much more tractable, much more solvable, all from making that shift of being able to self-reinforce, to tell yourself you did a good job. And to know also, as you said, it is a skill, right? So that is for, so for me, uh, you know, in the vein of sort of transparency and honesty, that is a hard thing for me to do. It's hard for me to say, wow, you did a really good job. Like I have to really overachieve, right? It has yeah. to be the overachievement for me to say, okay, like you actually did a good job here. I can see the excellence that you put out. That's your core value, da, da, da. So 
with that understanding that you are acquiring a new skill that you may not be that great at <laughs> in the beginning, you, you know, to be able to accept maybe some of those negative or some of the disparaging thoughts that may happen, but know that that is also subject to change as well. Because mm-hmm. what I, what I don't want the type A's and I'm saying this be, as a type A uh, type of personality is for, you know, for them to hear, okay, so I, I have to like, you know, pump myself up and give myself a, and then when they're not able to do it or they have a block for whatever reason, like, see, I can't even, can't even do this. Can't even celebrate. Can't even do the C from the ABCs that he talks about. So why am I even, you know, so it's like, it's a skill. You're going to suck at it in the beginning because that's what happens when you start to acquire new skills. You don't have the tech, you don't have the ability yet. So it's okay if you're not great at giving yourself a high five right from the start. Yeah. Yeah. And let me, um, yes, exactly right. That's right on target. And for some people who have a hard time giving themselves a high five, or some people literally pat themselves on the back, and some people do cheerleading kinds of things. And some, I've coached over 60,000 people personally in the method through email, personally, individually. Wow. So I know a lot about this. Okay. And that started in 2011. I did hundreds of people a week for years and years and years. So, I, I know the landscape here. And some people just just resist it. So it was about 2017 or 18 that within the Tiny Habits Coach community, we explored this and figured out if you have a really hard time saying, good for me, way to go, what you do, and we call it a purpose-focused celebration. It's like, okay, me flossing one tooth serves the purpose a better oral care and better overall care. So you connect in that moment of doing the two push-ups or the flossing one tooth or taking a sip of water, how that action serves a very important purpose in your life. Okay, so you actively, so you don't have to do the cheerleader thing or high five, you just actively visualize that by doing these two push-ups, for me as a 59-year-old guy, I'm going to have more muscle mass and bone strength, and I'm going to be able to be more vital, and I'm going to be able to teach more and have better impact in the world. So that's what these two push-ups are doing, is it's opening the door for me to have more impact in the world. And that's the purpose of my life, right? So you connect the tiny thing. So that is a type of celebration. It's a type of reinforcing is to actively think, um, you know, the behavior and what you'd call the outcome and connect those very clearly in your mind. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna. It's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. I like the purpose focus celebration. I feel like as you were describing it, I have less limbic resistance to it. You know, so yeah, I can yeah. I can get around them and say, oh yeah, like that's that's feeding into the goal. Like I totally 
I totally get yeah. that. Yeah. And, and you, but you got to pick a pretty high purpose. When I talked about flossing and the higher purpose, you notice I stumbled a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, better oral health. There are other systemic things for women and pregnant women where oral care really matters. Um, for me and many, uh, for me, I really value my teeth. So I might just say, this is going to help me keep my teeth and help me look better and younger. It's like vanity, right? So I'll just think, this is yeah. going to help me look younger and just tap into that vanity thing I have around my smile and my teeth. So it can't just be, it's going to help me lose weight. That's not a life purpose, okay? Right. You probably want to push on them and say, what is this whole weight loss of health journey about really for me? So you got to push it up to a high enough level that it is a fundamental purpose of your life, okay? And so that's part of what we're doing with Tiny Habits and the testing and the research is like, where's the threshold between, oh, it's, you know, I want to lose weight and that's important to something that's higher order. So I want to be an example to my daughter. I want to be there for my granddaughter's wedding, you know, like something that's really, really meaningful and not proximal and maybe um, not a life purpose. Yeah. 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 I I agree. I think weight loss, uh, while an admirable uh, outcome has to feed into something bigger to your point. And I think, um, one of the one of the ways that I've uh, thought about this for myself and the way I've, I've coached other people is just to just pretend like you're a toddler. Like if you remember, if you've ever been around a two year old, they a- they want to make sense of their world. So they're always asking why. Why is it like this? Why is it like this? Why is it like this? Why, why, why? So if you say, why do you want to lose weight? Oh, well, I want to look better. Why do you want to look better? Oh, well, maybe, uh, you know, my husband and I would like, I would, I feel like maybe my husband would be more attracted to me, uh, maybe than he is now, let's say, why is that important to you? And then you kind of go down the whole, you know, well, maybe when we were dating, I feel like we had a really, and I miss those times. I want to reconnect with my husband. And now you, and now you have something that's a bit more substantial. It's like, you want to connect with your life partner. Um, and you want to feel, you know, and you want to feel good doing it. Like, I think that that's yeah. more substantial than I need to lose 15 pounds. Yeah. Yep. yeah, right on. And that's part of what we've been, um, uh, have been toying with and experimenting. And we, now we have a template to help people articulate what that higher purpose is for them. And it sounds like you have a method as well, and there's probably other methods, but that is, uh, I wish when I started teaching tiny habits and running the five day program in 2011. I wish I'd known this because there were years of people <laughs> I've worked with, you know, hundreds and maybe up to thousands that just just had that negative response. Like, I, I can't cheer myself on. I can't, I can't say good job me because it was so tiny. But this purpose-focused approach does seem to make sense to people who are super rational and more resistant to other types. And um Again, the big picture here is that you change best by feeling good, not by feeling bad. You're not using guilt or shame. You're not saying, if I don't do this, then all these negative things will happen. You're saying, by doing this, I'm going to achieve more vitality. And that matters to me because I want to teach and I want to have impact in the world. And that's what my life is about. I mean, that's how I think about it. I mean, everything I do is about having positive impact in the world. Why does that matter? I can't push that any further back. That's just, that's just how I, you know, how I'm wired. That's coming from and, your soul. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but if you can help yourself feel successful in achieving that, that's how you line up and self-reinforce on the habits. This is helping me achieve this thing. So there are two big 
concepts in lasting change. Um, I just mentioned number two, so let me go back to number one. Number one, and I call it fog maxim number one, it's help yourself do what you already want to do. And a lot of people are like, I already want to do it. I'm probably doing it. No, that's not true, actually. You know, so don't pick things you don't want to do. Like if there's a type of exercise you don't want to do, don't do that. If there's a type of uh, nutrition change, don't do that. If you don't want to do it, there's plenty of other options for exercise, nutrition, stress reduction, relationship building that you already want to do. So help yourself to, and part of helping yourself to is to make it easy. Okay, that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Maxim number two is help yourself feel successful. And we've talked about that a lot. If you don't do one of those two things, you will not create lasting change. If you do both of those things, you have a very good shot at creating lasting change. So there's different products and programs out there about habits that stick and so on. And what you're looking for in anything that you do is, is it helping me do what I already want to do? And is it helping me feel successful? And it's got to check those boxes. If it's doing the opposite, like it's going to get me things to do I don't want to do, and it's causing me to feel unsuccessful, do not sign up. Do not do that. Abandon that because that's a poorly designed program. Well, we've all tried that on our own or with other people. So those are the two, um, I call them maxims, but those are really the two things that you're designing for. Help yourself do what you already want to do. Help yourself feel successful. And if you do that, you're on your way. Let's talk a little bit about motivation as you're, as you're talking about these two maxims, um, help yourself do what you want to do. I think that many, um, you know, new year's resolutions, let's say, or even just any, any goal that you set, uh, someone might say, I want to lose weight or I want to learn a new language, or I want, uh, you know, I want to be able to do 10 pushups, uh, you know, without them being on my knees or something like that. There are also, uh, you know, I want to stop drinking wine in the evening. What I, what I find is that there's also, we have that desire, right? We have that motivation, but there's Mm -hmm. also like a competing motivation (laughs) that's like, but the cheesecake is so good. (laughs) (laughs) Can you speak a little bit, can you speak a little bit about how we can manage you know, we talk about, you know, you hear a lot of talk about self-sabotage and all of that. And I, and I don't know that it's, I mean, maybe it is self-sabotage, but I wonder if in the context of, you know, behavioral science, I wonder if it is competing motivations and then just one is like, we're just getting one upping on each other. And that's yeah. why the goal never actualizes. Well, the way you're describing it, you know, so I can talk about motivation waves. Okay. So motivation wave, when it goes up, you're super motivated for that thing, but the wave comes back down. So you might be super motivated, uh, at least in the U S to pay your taxes by April 15th, because that's the deadline. So, go, you know, April 12th and 13th, and it goes way up. And then after that uh, deadline passes, it goes back down. That's how motivation works. But notice that's for paying taxes. You may be super motivated to connect with relatives and friends over Thanksgiving or um, the Christmas holiday or other holidays like that. Your motivation goes up, but then it goes back down. Okay, This, um, this dynamic that happens, that our motivation goes up and down over time, We've all experienced it, but nobody had ever named this concept, surprisingly. You go back to the academic literature, it wasn't acknowledged very well. 
And then there's no name for it. So I named it with the help of David Sobel. We call, called it the motivation wave. And I think it's the perfect name. It goes up and it comes back down. It now, recedes and it goes for like it goes forward yeah. like, a, like a wave. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I'm living in Maui right now. The ocean's right there. The waves will go up and they'll go down and there's, you know, different tides, et cetera. And it, it works beautifully. There's little ripples and so on. It, it's, it's exactly the right term. Now there are waves for different things happening in our life. All right. So it's not like motivation is this general thing and I'm motivated for everything. And then everything goes down. There's different waves at different times and they can compete with each other. So, um, and that sounds like it is a problem, like, but it's not really a problem. Imagine if you were motivated to do everything at a high level all the time, you're super motivated to have sex, you're super motivated to balance your budget, you're super motivated to exercise, you're super motivated to learn a language all at the same time, and they all were high, think how disastrous your life would be, right? So it's not a human flaw, it's actually human nature and a strength that our motivation shifts around. And in a given moment, you're motivated to be with your partner, a different moment, you're motivated to finish a project at work and so on. And the reality of tiny habits is you, the reality is it will shift around. So you make the habit so easy, you can do it even when the motivation wave subsides, you'll still be consistent. But then when it goes up and you wanna do more, you do more. Okay, now, how, then you have these competing motivators. And this is where I think it types, taps into identity. When I'm wearing my hat as a brother, and I'm wearing that identity, I'm different than I am as a Stanford teacher. And I'm, when, and when I'm out with friends, like, oh, let's say at a, a basketball game, watching that, I'm different there, right? So we wear different hats, and that's not a bad thing. It's just how it is. But if you can more solidly live in the identity that I'm the kind of person who eats healthy, I'm the kind of person who moves on a regular basis, I'm the kind of person who manages my stress and have those identities be stronger, it's like the tide goes up for those things. See what I'm saying? So it's almost like the tide rises on those things and the motivation is just generally higher on those things. The stronger that you identify with that as being who you are and part of your character. And is that environmentally driven? Do we see a large part of that being driven by the environment? A, a lot. The, the shift in identity, for sure, right? Um, so um, let me give an example. <laughs> in about uh, 30 minutes, um, and so one of my business colleagues is here in Maui and he wants to meet up here in McKenna on a beach. Now. And I'm going to go and I'm going to go shorts and a t-shirt and I'll probably take off my t-shirt and sit on the beach and, um, chat with him and his family. Now, two months ago, he came to our home in California. Had I walked in like Vaudrin and walked into our home wearing shorts and no shirt, that would have been weird. Right. And it's not like the behavior is any different. I'm still just wearing shorts with nothing else. But in the context or environment the of context. the beach, it's mm -hmm. totally different than at home, right? And so that's the other piece to the puzzle. And I'm so glad uh, that you brought it up. There are two ways to create lasting change and they work together. One is to create these habits using the tiny habits method or small steps approach and wire them in. The other is to change, redesign your environment and they work together. You don't do just one or the other. So 
uh, like right here in my my home office here in Maui, I have uh, dumbbells, I have a kettlebell, I have something to stretch my catches. I have a massage chair, a huge, uh, gigantic massage chair in the corner there. And so even though this is where I mostly work, I've made it really easy. I have a stand-up desk, et cetera. So I've changed my environment right here to make it really easy for me to be physically active, to work on flexibility, to get in the massage chair, et cetera. So you're really doing two things. You're doing a, a, a tiny steps approach or a tiny habits approach to creating habits. And you're redesigning your environment to make the good behaviors easy to do and the unwanted behaviors hard to do. And those go hand in hand. The third thing that people think works and does not is to have an epiphany. And so from the beginning in teaching Tiny Habits in 2011, I said, here are three ways to create lasting change. You know, the, the baby steps, redesign your environment. And third is epiphany, but you cannot design an epiphany for yourself. Yes, they happen. They happen and you just see the world differently and you start acting differently, but you cannot make that happen. All right. So forget way number three. Don't rely on that. Don't rely yeah. on that. Yeah. And if it happens, awesome. Yeah. But I mean, you know, and other medical professionals really clued me in early, even people that know they're going to die if they don't do X, Y, Z, that still does not reliably change everybody's habits to do it. You know, you think it would. So you really only have these two levers, you know, we'll call them tiny habits and redesign your environment. And they go hand in hand. And those are the those are those things we have we we have at our disposal, and they can work very reliably. And it's not guesswork, and it's not it it's not random. It's systematic. And so the exciting thing here is you can systematically change your habits and change your life. And it doesn't have to be luck or guesswork. You can systematically do it. I think this lends into a beautiful discussion around prompts. Um, you talk about the prompts being sort of the invisible drivers of our lives. You know, the phone, there's a notification and the prompt, like that's the prompt. And then the behavior that follows is you pick up to see who's liked your Instagram post or who's sent you an email or whatever. You know, the red light turns green. That's a prompt for us to move the foot from the brake to the gas, et cetera. Um, and, you know, whether it's designed like that or it's natural, uh, this is this is going to prompt us. You know, you have the massage chair. So you, you when you're taking a break, you're like, oh, that might be nice. That's a prompt. I'll just go and I'll yeah. sit in there and I'm going to, you know, get the behavior that I want to that I want to get out of that, which is relaxing my muscles and taking a moment to a moment to myself, you know, what have you. Can you can you talk a little bit about prompts, uh, the different types of prompts and then how we might with that yeah. understanding design the environment so that we can so that we can um you know efficaciously um get the behaviors that we're looking for i love that segue and you're very clever and i mean that in a very very good way so the the fog behavior model says behavior happens when you have motivation ability and a prompt just those three things motivation to do the behavior we've talked some about that you've got to acknowledge the motivation wave ability to do the behavior we've talked about that the way you design, there's three ways, but the best way is to make it really easy to do. And then the third thing is prompt. There has to be something that reminds you to do the behavior. Now, one in the tiny habits method, what you do is you find an existing routine you already do to be your prompt. In other words, your reminder. So for flossing, brushing is like, after I brush, I will floss one tooth. Bam. So you don't use like a post-it or other things, you just use your existing routine to do this. 
And uh, like, if you want to read more, you would scale it back to read a sentence, read a paragraph, but what is your prompt for reading more? It might be after I turn on the coffee maker or after I sit down on the patio or after I, you know, put my bag on the chair after work or whatever. You, you, so you design it into your life to follow a routine you already do. So use the routine as the prompt. Now, what I loved about what you shared, Dr. Stephanie, is you can use physical things around you to prompt you. So for me, for example, water glass on my desk, I don't hide the water glass. It's right there. And so the water glass itself is a prompt. After I look at the water glass, I'll take a sip. And like you said, the big old massage chair over there, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, I could go do a massage or the uh, dumbbells or kettlebells or whatever. So if you can design your environment to prompt you at the right moment to do that, that's great. Now, there are the wrong moments to do things. Like I probably wouldn't put the kettlebell in the shower. That's not the right, you know, time for me to go, oh, I'm going to do some kettlebell work here in the glass shower and break it. But it's probably the right time to exfoliate my face. And it turns out, for me anyway, turning off the shower is the right time for me to stretch my hamstrings. It just is. So after I turn off the shower, I lean over and I stretch my hamstrings for a while. That's a perfect kind of rusty. So I don't need anything visual. It's just part of my behavior sequences. So the prompts can be something visual that you establish in your environment, but sometimes you become blind to them, you know, like you just don't see them anymore. But more powerfully, if you use an existing routine, like turning off the shower or starting the coffee maker or brushing, because you don't get blind to those routines, you always do them. And then this is almost like your computer programming in your brain. After I turn off the shower, the next line of code or the next instruction is then stretch my hamstrings. If this, then that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so that is a way to figure out what is the right prompt for this habit. Um, but then even when we talk about environment and prompts, um, I have the way we store food in both our home in California here in Maui is very deliberate. And when you open our fridge, all the good food that we can eat and I can eat at any moment is right there, ready to go. And anything that's not quite on our game plan, if we actually bring it to the house, is very hidden. It's not up front and center. You know, ideally we don't bring it in. And I call that super fridge. So you design your fridge. So when you open it, you're only prompted to do those kinds of eating behaviors that are on your game plan. And there's nothing in there that's like, oh, I got to resist that right now. I got to resist that and so on. And for us, um, and it extends to the cabinets as well. I put like food in clear containers, the nuts and the, and the you know, the chia seeds and the flax, you know, the other kinds of things I want to be eating are right there. It's super easy to use clear containers. So notice it's both prompting me and it's making it easy to do. So that's what you're doing in your redesigning your environment. Make the good behaviors really easy to do. And if you can, set it up so you are naturally prompted at the right time to do those behaviors. And super fridge is like what I've named that, you know, the way that you redesign your fridge once a week. Uh, and that alone is just really transformative. Not only that you eat differently, but every time you open the fridge, you feel like amazing it's like look at my fridge this should be in a magazine this is <laughs> you know, what adulting like, looks like yeah <laughs> it makes you just feel awesome yeah. and then it also never makes you feel bad because it's like i can eat anything in this fridge at yeah. any time 
and I'm not going to feel guilty. You know, that's how because, I get my yeah. kids to eat and myself to eat more vegetables. Because if I look at the celery and it's not, or the carrots and they're not cleaned or chopped, yeah. I'm like, ugh, I got to spend yeah, exactly. 10 minutes doing this now. But if it's already done, they're in the glass containers. They're just, they're just waiting like a boutique hotel, like just waiting for yeah. you to, you know, kind of take that. I love that. I, I also practice that as well. And then I think that, um, you know, that uh, what I, I, I also have glass containers. I keep them on the, like, you know, just beside the hob, like just beside the stove or whatever. So every time I walk by, I'm like, oh yeah, I could, you know, I could use the, I could have, you know, 10 nuts, let's say, or 10 pistachios or whatever it is. So you're prompting yourself in the right way rather than filling those up with macaroons or cupcakes or candy or whatever. And then to your point where you have to resist it every single time. And yes, exactly. And by the way, I ate pistachios this morning too. Uh, yay. Yay, um, pistachios, my favorite. I, I, I probably eat way too many nuts. I love nuts. <laughs> um, but yeah, but if you, it's like candy or something you have to resist, and every time you look at it, you say, no, I can't do that, you're siphoning off some willpower and you're reducing your ability to execute your game plan in the future. Yeah. I also believe that with hitting the snooze button on your phone, I say I believe it because I haven't done research. Maybe one of these days my Stanford lab will do the research. Every time you're like, oh, do I get up or not get up? I'm going to hit the snooze. And every time you are doing that, you are undermining, uh, I guess you call it willpower, but it's sort of your mojo. Like decision fatigue. It's like, I don't want to make this decision right now. Yeah. 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 So it's just like, don't have you know, the chips or the candy sitting out where you're like, no, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. Just think of that as like, guess what? You're draining, you're draining, draining, draining this energy or this force that you may need later to make a hard decision or do something hard. So again, that's part of the environment redesign uh, to make the good things easy to do and make the bad things impossible to do or difficult at least. And, um, Maybe one of these days in my lab, we will quantify the effect of that, the effect of resisting temptation over and over and over on you being able to execute something amazing later that day. Can we talk a bit about anchors? So you, we've already touched on them a little bit. Like you've talked about the Maui, you know, you talk about in the yeah. book, the Maui habit. When I my, you know, go to the bathroom, I go pee, I'm going to do two pushups. How do we, um, how do we go about defining the right anchor and matching that with the ability. So I know, obviously, you you know, you mentioned like, I'm not going to take the kettlebell into the shower. I'm going to slip. I'm going to get a concussion and I'm going to break my, (laughs) I'm going to break the glass in the shower. So that's an example of a bad anchor, right? Or a bad, you know, prompt, let's say, how do we, how do we choose the right anchor? Yeah. Well, let's take the example of reading more. And I've been working on this last month to read stuff that's not work-related. I mean, I read a lot, but it's always just very practical and work-related. So it's like, okay, I'm going to read stuff that has nothing to do with my work. And of course, I use the tiny habits method to do it. And so I got very, first, you got get specifics, not just read more, it's read. And then I found the exact books. I found three books and I got those books. And then I ended up getting Kindle, actually which is kind of a detail, but you've got to be clear, what exactly is this behavior? And then I scaled it back to just be a paragraph. Okay, that's setting the bar low. And then the question is, where does this fit? What do I anchor it to? And anchor, you 
you know, you anchor it to a routine that you already do. So where does reading fit naturally in my life? So it turns out that reading fits naturally. There's a time when we're here tomorrow, I go sit on the lanai in the morning. So after I sit down on my chair in the lanai, that's when I do that little bit of reading. And if I want to do more, terrific. It's awesome. Uh, finding a once a day uh, routine that you can get. So if you want to do the habit once a day, find a routine that you do once a day, right? I wanted to do push-ups five or so times during the day. So peeing is great because I pee like five times a day, depending on how much coffee or whatever I have. Um, and then you want to have it be in the same geographical location. So in this case, I leave my Kindle out on the patio on the lanai right next to my chair. Okay, so you want the anchor sitting in the chair to be in the same location as the reading behavior. In terms of the push-ups, it means I'm doing push-ups in the bathroom, on the bathroom floor. That's fine with me. But I only do that at home. I used to do it in hotel rooms and stuff it's like, yeah, a little creepy, uh, a little weird. Um, so you're looking for the frequency of the habit and matching it to the, the anchor routine frequency. You're looking for the geographical location that's really important. Um, like it needs to happen at the same spot. And then ideally there's a thematic connection. Whereas after I brush, I will floss into the same thing. It's taking care of your teeth. After I pee, I'll do two push-ups. Is that the same theme? In my mind it is because it's like taking care of myself, okay? Um, so I just think of it as this is, these are habits I do in sequence to take care of myself. And then after I do push-ups, I wash my hands. So that's the sequence right there. So finding the right anchor or finding the, in other words, the right routine to prompt the new habit can take some um, trial and error. And the more you practice it, the better you get. But the three factors that really matter is the frequency, the location, far and away the most important. If you can also make it a thematic match, that's not a requirement as much as the other two, but it does help because then it feels like you're living, I'm taking care of my teeth right now, or I'm getting smarter right now, or I'm you know, starting my day well right now by reading, for example. I took some of my doctors, I, I coach uh, some healthcare uh, practitioners and, and doctors in a mastermind that I run through this exercise. Um, to find, you know, to your point around finding the frequency with which you want the habit to habit and to, to happen, and then tagging that, like geotagging it, let's say, mm -hmm. uh, some of the, you know, just to kind of inspire some of the listeners. Some of, there were some really good ones. It was like once I drop off my kids from school. I am going to make my to-do list for the day, let's say, because it happens. Yeah. You know, it's like closing the door is the, like it's the prompt, yeah. right? And it's like, okay, the kids are in school. It's 8.50 or whatever. I'm going to write for 10 minutes in my car or on my phone, my to-do list for the day. Um, another one that was really great, it was the shower. It was like, wh while I'm waiting for the shower to warm up, I'm going to look at myself naked in the mirror and, and you know, say, two things beautiful, like two, two positive affirmations about my body, let's yeah. say. So I thought that those were, I thought that those were really, um, there's, there was a bunch more, but those ones, those were the ones that stood out for me. Cause there's all these little tiny moments in the, like yeah. waiting for the shower to warm, you know, waiting for the coffee to, you know, to percolate or to, you know, warm up and rinse and then make the espresso or whatever. There's all these little moments where we're waiting, where you might, another one actually was like, while I'm waiting for the coffee machine to wake up, I'm going to do 10 squats. Like air yep. squats, just 10 air squats. It's like, yeah, everybody. And that can make such a huge difference, not yeah. only on the strength of your legs, 
but it changes how you think about yourself. I'm the kind of person who's physically active. Now, we haven't talked about this, Dr. Stephanie, directly, but what you are suggesting, and I'm a huge fan of, is you make a list of things you do every day very reliably. You know, what routines are just wired in? You can call them habits, but you know, what do I do every day? Well, I get up, I pee, I, you know, wash my face, I da 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 da. You know, I start the coffee maker, I buckle my seatbelt. And then think, look at each one and say, what new habit could I put right after that? After I buckle my seatbelt before I drive to work, what can I do in that moment? Well, you could think about maybe the purpose of why you're going to work, or you may have a moment of gratitude for your health or something like that. So in other words, you can start with the anchors or start with those moments and say, well, what new habit could come right after that. And that's a great way to design new habits in your life. You're actually starting with the opportunity or the landscape or the real estate, you know, that you can develop, you know, app, you know, develop into a habit. And some of them, um, you know, the ones where you're waiting for the shower to warm off or after I start washing my hands, which looks like you have like 20 seconds or so to do some habit. It's like, what habit could go in that? Uh, I'm in a room with a whole bunch of shutters. The master bedroom in this home has even more shutters, like tons. Um, and so a habit that I had um, that I've since let go because it served its purpose was as I would open the shutters in the morning, which was kind of like shutter, 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 shutter. It's like <laughs> I would think of a different person in my life. And just kind of feel like, is this a person I need to reach out to? And I, in my, and it was mostly oh, uh, nieces and nephews and siblings. Mm -hmm. So it was a moment of my day when I was just going through and I could be thinking about nothing, but instead I turned it into this deliberate moment of who do I need to reach out to today? So I didn't start with, oh, I'm going to have a daily practice of thinking which people close to me I need to reach out to. I said, like, man, I'm always opening up these shutters. It's a total drag. I mean, yeah, I want them open so the sun comes in. But what can I do that's meaningful to me? And at that time, this was the meaningful behavior. And it was an awesome habit uh, to wire in it. But it started with these anchors or these routines and saying, what could be connected to this? Yeah. Really great. So when we're thinking about when we're thinking about the fog behavior model, this can be used essentially to start a new habit and also to stop a new stop a habit that you're doing yeah. that you no longer uh, would like to do. And that's also going to, you know, kind of feeding into what we were talking about before. It's also going to lower that competing motivation, like yeah. it's going to maybe tip the scale uh, in your favor. Um so what are some, if someone is thinking, okay, so maybe I don't want to, maybe I don't want to learn a new language or maybe I don't want to like start a new thing, but I want to get rid of something that I'm doing. I want to like addition through subtraction. I want to get rid of a habit yeah. that is no longer serving me. Um, what would be kind of like the 30,000 foot, let's say view, like what would be the steps that someone, is it the same exact we're thinking about the behavior, the yeah. environment, the prompt, the ability, we're thinking about all of those things as well. Yeah, 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 it depends. I mean, stopping unwanted habits is way more complicated than starting new habits, much more complicated. And don't let any book or any person mislead you all on that. It is uh, a complicated process, um, but it can be easy or it can be very hard or anything in between. Um, the I'm going to give two different suggestions because it really depends on the habit, how it's wired into your life, your emotional connection to the habit, and so on. So there's no one way. I'm going to give you two, and there's various. Uh, one, 
the the most direct if you can is you I mean, you go through the behavior model so that habit is happening when you have motivation ability and a prompt so it's like can you remove the prompt can you remove the prompt so but snacking on candy in your kitchen and the candy sitting out in the glass jar yeah you can remove the prompt just take it and put it in a drawer or just get rid of candy okay so that what you're doing is you are getting rid of the prompt and that will reduce the behavior maybe get rid of entirely if you cannot remove the prompt like some things are just urges then you move to ability and how do i make this really hard to do okay so you make the behavior harder to do i had a serious and you and others are going to laugh at this like a pop a problem with popcorn and i know that sounds trivial and people would not let me put it in my book because they're like people are dealing with serious addiction you're going to talk about popcorn it was a serious problem in my life i would eat so much popcorn every night it would make me sick i was I gained weight from it. I felt terrible about myself. <laughs> as crazy as that sounds. And so what I did was I I moved all the popcorn paraphernalia up in the attic where you had to climb this weird stair up to get it. And that worked for a while until I found myself going up and getting it. And then I just said, Denny, we can't have any popcorn paraphernalia in the house. And when people would give me gift like popcorn, I would immediately get rid of it. You know, so I make the popcorn behavior very hard to do. Yeah. And those are the two levers. Now, the next one is motivation, but that's going to be really hard to shift for some of these habits because that motivation, the popcorn motivation I figured out was about, it went back to my childhood. In my family that worked constantly. So I grew up Mormon and Mormons work all the time. You know, it's part of the culture. The only time that we didn't have to work was when we sat down and had popcorn as a family and watched a movie. So for me, popcorn was a signal that I am off the clock and I can relax. So there was this emotional component to popcorn as crazy that as it sounds. That was beyond your conscious perception, it sounds yeah. like initially. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and I couldn't, even once I recognized, I couldn't change it. That's just what popcorn meant to me. And when I was ready to relax, it was like, let's have popcorn. Right. It was just so I really couldn't remove that motivator. So it came down to making hard to do. And that so for most people, those are your two steps. Remove the prompt, make it really hard to do. Now, if it's a more complicated habit, um, I've outlined this in my book, Tiny Habits, a whole chapter on it. There's a step-by-step -step system, but I'm going to encourage you to start with what you don't expect. It's start by creating new habits in any domain that you want. Okay, so in just learn to create new habits, not Even related to the thing you're trying to stop. It doesn't matter what the thing is, just anything, because what's going to happen is as you create new habits and feel successful, one, you're thinking about yourself will change. I'm the kind of person who can change. I'm the kind of person who can create habits. Okay, so your identity is going to change um, and then your skills of creating habits will go up. You know, the more you create habits in the right way, the more, more skilled you get. Like for me to create a habit is really easy, right? Because I practiced it tons and tons and tons. The more you do it in the right way, the better you get. So one, your, your identity shifts, your confidence goes up, your skills go up, which then prepares you to tackle harder things, okay? What you don't want to do as a novice behavior change person, as we call them habiteers, you know, habiteers are people practicing habits is then take that really hard habit in your life and as a novice habiteer, tackle that. 
that would be me if I have a piano here also in this room. That would be really like me not knowing how to play the piano and putting up, you know, Rachmaninoff and saying, I'm just going to play this super hard thing. I'm going to just motivate my, no, that's, no, you start with the simple things, you build the skills and the confidence, and then you tackle the hard things. So that's why um, in one approach to this, you would just say, okay, this eating cake at three in the morning is not a great thing for me, but I'm going to just set that aside for now and just practice creating a bunch of other habits and build my confidence that I can change, build my identity around change and build my skills of change. And then take those into the project of untangling, not breaking, untangling the chocolate cake at three in the morning habit or whatever it is. I love that. BJ, I, um, I have really enjoyed our conversation. I think that there's been a lot of aha moments uh, for me and anybody who's listening to this when we're thinking about creating change, getting rid of habits that we don't want, adding on habits that we do want in order to become at least what I think more of who we already are. But, you know, as we go through life, we put on more cloaks and schemas and filth, you know, and belief systems. But, you know, as we, as we get closer to who we are, I think that this is such an important framework for thinking about setting a habit and following through on it. You know, to your point, it's like, we can do big things. Like you can run across an airport to catch a flight like <laughs> one time. You can do it one time. You can do all of your workouts for an hour a day, maybe for one week, but you know, to really keep some of these habits going. I love tiny. I love that it's fast. It's like, you know, the limbic resistance isn't there and all of the nuance that you've discussed today uh, has just been fabulous. And it was going to be very useful uh, for my listeners. Uh, you've mentioned a couple of times that there's training and courses. If people want to learn more about that, is there anywhere that you can direct people? Um, tinyhabits.com is the starting point. We have a certification uh, course for coaches or people that want to help others with this method. Um, you know, Tiny Habits book is... Of course, I think it's a great resource. It brings together so much that hasn't been shared before. And it's not the same old thing that you read in other books. I mean, because other books have picked similar titles, people like, oh, I read that. No, everything in Tiny Habits is new and it's my work. I'm not recycling anything from anybody else. It's all my innovation based on my research and my coaching of 60,000 people. Um, So start at tinyhabits.com for that. If you want to know about me more generally, bjfog.com. Awesome. We'll have all those clickable links um, in the show notes. BJ, thank you so much for your time. I hope you enjoy your time on the beach after this. And I hope to connect with you soon again. Thank you so much. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast, Better with Dr. Stephanie, is for general information only. And the advice, recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only. 